Hey everyone, just a couple announcements before we get started about some cool opportunities happening in Impact Investing. Convergence Blended Finance is holding its uh, State of Blended Finance 2021 report launch on Wednesday, uh, October 27th from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Uh, They're going to be providing um, the results of this report with an updated analysis of the blended finance market, which includes the various blending approaches being used, which sectors, regions, and investor trends are happening. For the first time, the report's going to include a thematic focus on how to achieve scale in the blended finance market and highlight key challenges and recommendations. So that should be pretty interesting. Also, Spring Activator is hosting their Angels for Climate Solutions, which is a program where investors are going to work together to navigate the ins and the outs of early stage investing while learning more about some of British Columbia's emerging climate-focused startups. And at the end of this virtual interactive program, the investors working together are going to collectively award $100,000 to one winning business. So it's a really cool opportunity to get your feet wet in impact investing with a cohort learning on the fly as you go. So if you've been on the fence about how to go about investing capital, this is a great opportunity. The deadline to apply for this program, spots are limited, so you do have to apply. It's October 27th. And I'll provide a link to that application portal and the details in the newsletter. And also in the newsletter, some interest, really great articles. I won't mention them all here. And some cool job openings in the impact investing industry that I've come across. Convergence, Blended Finance is hiring. NBC, which is a new organization, is hiring for a CIO. Deepkin Impact, who's Alexa Blaine's been on the podcast before, talking about their work in Latin America. And Candide Group, which is run by Morgan Simon. They're based out of the US, but really does a lot of amazing impact investing work. And they're hiring as well. So you can look to the newsletter for those links to those opportunities. And if you're not already subscribed, uh, you can visit impactinvesting.how, which is H-O-W, and you can sign up for the newsletter there. So I hope you'll check that out. And with that, let's get on to the podcast. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Today, there is a growing recognition that we need to get far more capital into the hands of people who have been systematically excluded from entrepreneurship. Historically, capital has been disproportionately allocated to a very narrow slice of entrepreneurs who tend to be Ivy League-educated white men. Meanwhile, women, people of color, LGBTQ+, and indigenous communities, and many others have been systematically excluded. And while today there's a growing number of funds, incubators, and accelerators that have been established to get capital into the hands of a much more diverse group of entrepreneurs, we still have a long way to go. According to Rate My Investor and Diversity VC's second report on diversity in U.S. startups, VC-backed startups in the United States are still significantly male, so 89.3% of all uh, VC-backed startups are male, white, 71.6%, based in Silicon Valley at 35.3%, and Ivy League educated at 13.7%. Part of the problem is that those who allocate capital to entrepreneurs, 
for instance, fund managers, are still mostly represented by wealthy white men. And according to our next guest's research, of the roughly $70 trillion of investment assets in the United States, just about 1% is managed by diverse asset managers. So in this episode, we're joined by Bahia Yasmin Robinson, founder and CEO of VC Include. What distinguishes Bahia's efforts are that while others are focused on supporting diverse entrepreneurs, Bahia's efforts are focused on supporting diverse fund managers. Bahia's expertise in leading technology, investment, and social impact initiatives since the early 2000s culminated in her creating VC Include in 2018 to build platforms and programs for diverse emerging managers globally. VC Include was established to meet the market opportunity by building an ecosystem of women, Black, Latinx, Indigenous, and LGBTQ plus fund managers. During this episode, we discuss who and why certain groups of people get systematically excluded from the private equity industry. We discuss conscious versus unconscious bias, the moral imperative, structural inequalities, and how VC Include supports diverse emerging fund managers to overcome the hurdles that prevent them from raising and managing more capital. With that, let's get on to the conversation. Bahia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, David. Excited my, to be here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm excited to, to have this conversation because you're operating in a space that I don't know of a lot of other folks tackling this specific problem. The general problem, yes, but the specific stakeholders you're dealing with is fairly unique from, from, my, from my experience. So can you Introduce yourself and, and a little bit about what you're doing. Sure. I'm Bahia Yasmin Robinson. I'm founder and CEO of the Include franchise, which includes VC Include or VCI. And VCI, it started off as a platform that I built because I saw a need in the market to provide a platform and a place for best-in-class fund managers that invest in, in founders and invest in companies. But those asset managers, which, by the way, represent 1.3% of, in the U.S., $70 trillion of assets under management, 1.3% are women of people of color. And there was no real platform that was just um, aggregating those best-in-class managers. And again, saw a market opportunity, launched that in 2018, and, uh, and since have gone grown pretty rapidly to build out this franchise model of the platform, which works with fund managers and asset allocators or LPs for some folks that are in the investment industry that invest in funds, and as well, training and education arm, which is a nonprofit that works with emerging fund managers and early stage fund managers that are just the beginning stages of building their asset management firms. And then the third piece is a vehicle, to, investment vehicle that will actually be investing in funds and really supporting and building out, again, just our mission to amplify and accelerate investment into under historically underrepresented fund managers at scale. So there's a lot there to unpack. <laughs> yeah, that's small task you've got. Yeah, that's one <laughs> Easy. So let's unpack this a little bit. You, yeah. you mentioned that kind of Mind-bending stat off the top around what is it one point three percent of assets are being sixty-nine trillion dollars of assets are being managed by by women. Is it sorry? It's women, women um, and kind of and men of, of color, color, right? Broadly. So, so everyone but white men. Okay, exactly. <laughs> to make it clear, yeah. And this, so this issue, because what 
when we were talking about this just before we recorded, mm-hmm. there's certainly quite a bit of talk about underrepresented founders of right. companies. And that's a big problem still, even though there's more and more, I think, people and organizations trying to address how do we get capital to those entrepreneurs who don't typically receive it. But now what you're talking about is an additional issue of the investors are particularly white (laughs) men. And uh, how do we get more fund managers who can then allocate capital who are from underrepresented groups? Could you talk a little bit about, so like A, and you can address this any order you want, why, like, why is that a, a problem? And I think that should be self-evident, but maybe unpack some of the nuances. And then what are the, what, what you're around the challenges for how we get capital to these fund managers? What's prevent, presenting, preventing underrepresented folks from accessing it? Yeah, I think there's a few things to point out. I think one is, you know, I had an aha moment in 2017, which was the impetus for starting BCI. And it was that there is a direct correlation to a lack of investment into underrepresented founders, Black, Brown, Latinx, Indigenous, right? Women, including women, white women majority, but just women, just period. Again, all received two, two, about 2% of venture capital. They're out of, so again, 98% white men, 2%. Or 90% men, 2% women. So you can disaggregate the data, but it's black women 0.0006. So out of that 2% of a fraction of that 2% of women in the women bucket. So you start looking at these numbers that are one and two digits, right? And 1%, 2%, barely two, barely one, a little over one. It's directly correlated to uh, that number, that one point. 3% 3% of asset managers. And I think there's, I think what we're, particularly the last year or so, as painful as and, and tragic and, and upsetting as the last year has been uh, COVID, it has, in certain cases, not every case given, you know, pe- folks, people, investors, they're all people too, a, a moment to think about that. And so where uh, a lot of historic investors, whether they're asset allocators or asset managers, you get this done, you move to the next thing, you make the investment, you make sure you're trying to get the highest returns, you're trying to do the best job you can with what you have. This slowdown has highlighted a lot of the inequity that's built into the system. And quite frankly, that started generationally before women were allowed to vote or were allowed to own their own 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 homes or pay pay their own leases. So there's a historic kind of legacy that I think as women and people of color, we know that it's there because it's every day. But I think for white men and, and others, are just there's just a kind of that's the way it goes. That's just kind of how we roll. And that's the nut. And 1.3 is just the folks that have pulled themselves up from the bootstraps. But I think the other side of that, so understanding that's not quite, it's a distorted perspective. The other side of that is where are we actually as prudent fiduciaries of capital, as investors, looking to create or invest in new market opportunities. And then you get come right back to this stat again and say, is there, if it was 5%, we'd be looking at different types of deals. If there were support systems for building asset management firms that are institutional grade at the beginning, if there's 
resources and capital for more women to build products that might speak to different market segments? Could we do better and be better and invest better? And it starts getting me excited when you start thinking, I started 1.3 and white men versus black. It's, it's effed up, but it's what has happened in the past. But where are their opportunities? It's to be able to grow the field and to really understand that they're that diversity creates outperforming funds, diverse managers outperform market, diverse founders are leaner and meaner and, and women are able, they're better investors in terms of data. There's a lot of reports that share, show and share that, you know, adding and, and opening up the market a bit from, a, from an investment perspective will only give us more opportunities to generate alpha and generate higher returns. And so I think the other, you know, question, the other part of your question is, was it were there barriers or was it were there opportunity? I think I'm speaking to both. I, I think they're probably both. But yeah, yeah, what are those things that are preventing more underrepresented founders from becoming fund managers? I think one of the things that we identified pretty early was, again, just that wraparound support. I think historically what happens, and this happens in a number of industries, but you've got a small funnel of quote unquote, vetted signal, like positive signaling executives or potential executives or quote unquote stars. What does that mean? Is everyone a star? Is there just a couple of stars? And so then a person of color or a woman will go to some of the right schools or maybe all the right schools, or maybe they don't go to the right schools, but they have a, a family member that's in the industry. And so they see them in the beginning and they say, look, if you follow this path, don't mess up too much <laughs> too often or too, don't do anything too egregious. You could get to this, this point where you're able to thrive in the investment industry, those opportunities, that kind of, that story is so far and few between for women and people of color. That's where, that's why it's 1.3%. It's like the 1.3% that were right time, right place, and had the talent, had to have the kind of talent and the chops, but just, again, got connected in somehow, some way. I mean, there's a lot of story. Every story, every diverse manager I know has a story that is that story. I went to, I went to Penn and there was a teacher and they happened, that kind of professor and there's a, or my classmate, or I went to, I got selected in a lottery to go to a boarding school. Like those types of like anomalies, like that kind of Malcolm Gladwell blank or tipping point where it's just like that. It's not just the 10,000 hours. It's also the 10,000 hours plus the serendipity. right, the serendipity of the year and the vintage and the, and the, the person that lived next door kind of thing. And so what we want to do is, again, from an opportunity set perspective, widen that, create more of those opportunities to mentor, opportunities to invest opportunities to, to again, open the market a bit and not have it. So it's too narrow. It's too narrow for the way that this world is like that number is just so skewed that if you were, if you had told me that you had designed a system to purposely exclude as many non-white men as possible, and your success rate was 98 point, whatever it is, 7% or 6%. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'd say, wow, you, well, an amazing job you did. That's really great. Right. The only one point if that was your intent, you, yeah. you, uh, what a great system that is. <laughs> and so that's pretty shocking that I don't, I think there are large parts of w what happens that was intentional. Maybe, I don't know. I don't, it's hard to parse out how much is intentional and how much is just sort of, this is the system that we're living in now. And if you're, you're not actively fighting it, then you're just allowing it to perpetuate. And I think that's my 
sense, if I had to guess, is that's a big part of it is a big problem is people just accept the status quo and aren't fighting actively against a system that, that does discriminate exceedingly well against, against a, a, a whole lot of folks. Do you have a sense for like, how much of this is, is, is that it's just, this is the status quo and we don't have enough people fighting it versus, Hey, there's a lot of over conscious racism happening here or, and not even racism. It's because it's intersectional, it's genderism yeah. and it's. Yeah, I think, you know, this is the type of, these are the type of data points from a social uh, anthropological perspective that's really hard to to just say mm-hmm. 80% unconscious bias sure. and 20% absolute direct. We don't want you here. You're a competition. We're, we're comfortable. We're making our money. Why would we let you in when we are making a killing, doing it the way that we've been doing it? Right. Like from a human nature perspective, depending on your nature as a capitalist, right, as someone that's looking to basically capitalism, if we really want to go into that, is it's cre- it create you're supposed to create scarcity. That's part of it is like the capitalist system, which we all accept and live in, I may include it, is a restriction and scarcity and creating your own market. And I think, again, that has worked well for the white men that said, we're going to do this and we're going to band together and, and, and figure it out. And yeah, there might be some leakage and yeah, we might, as long as we're below two or three or four or 5%, we're good. We still have kind of market cap, market share. And I think you can look at it that way. And I, I definitely think there's some folks that did design it that way. I think where the banking and the financial markets, again, did not include by law women or people of color. It was not for design for them. Now we're in this different reality of women's right, voting and such. Those things that are democratic, supposedly principles that we're supposed to be able to to use our pension money that we work hard for to invest in maybe people that look like us that we could make even more money off of. But because folks are have a particular a particular formula that has worked that would take a lot of time, money and effort to evolve and append and change and innovate. Yeah, it's not, there's no incentive there. I think the moral incentive and imperative, again, I, I really do think that this is a moment in time of the next hundred years that will be deeply studied. And, and if we're lucky, we can come out of it ahead for the next hundred, because I think for everyone, it's just easy. It's some, a lot of times, unless you're really, it's easy when you're not underserved and you're not historically disenfranchised to say their problem. Again, we're making our money and we're doing our thing and we'll throw some philanthropic capital here and there. So that should be enough for you. But we really are talking about evolving the investment industry. And again, create on the positive side, there's so much more that we could be doing, right? With our brain power and with our innovative spirit, our creator, our creatorness, our creative, our creativity. When I say creatorness, it's really like the, our entrepreneurial and you do roll up your sleeves. This country is built on a lot of things and everyone's put a lot of time and effort at building. And so how can we continue to build or rebuild and kind of move some things around that kind of work for more of the nation? And I think we're really grappling with that at a societal level right now. And it's messy, I think, for investments and the investment industry, 
I actually think it's less messy. I think this is actually an industry that with the right perspective, that's just a little more open to the data and the numbers. And, and the, the last five years, so much data, how you know, diverse managers and teams outperform. It's just kind of like sitting there in pure sight. And I think the early adopters now are the ones that are going to win in the next decade, in the next 10, 20 years. I think the ones that say, you know what, for whatever reason, we have not been looking at diverse managers or we think, hey, you don't have the networks, you can't raise the fund. If we give you five, are you ever going to get to 50? All of those conversations that happen in the background, I think those are going to evolve into you, sh- you're, you miss that deal, right? You miss that. And it's going to be the next Ubers, the next folks that said, I could have put in 50,000 on the front end to make the several million on the back end, but just couldn't see the opportunity. Yeah. Do you, so let's assume for the moment and take the charitable interpretation that there's a lot of just subconscious or unconscious discrimination happening and this systems are in place that unless you're actively fighting it, then you're going to get this same result over and over again. And so one of the problems I think that you clearly did a good job of explaining there is is the very fact that there are few people of color and women in particular in fund manager roles means that you get very few, you get, you're just going to get fewer coming into that position. And one of the reasons I guess you say is because you don't have the parent who's in that field and who could teach you about it, or you don't have the connections and you're not in those circles and you don't know which path to go in. So you don't have that guidance and that, that roadmap, if you will, and the connections. I think I'm guessing that like part of it too comes down to, I lost my train of thought for a second. The, there's another aspect here I was trying, trying to tease out around the very fact, oh, the very fact that there are a few is also partly from the, if you are an allocator and you're picking fund managers. And there are very few, and you're looking at underrepresented, there's very few of them. You don't have, they don't have track records and you don't have a history behind you. There's very few that, that, that have a history and a long track record. And we know that that's just a really important part when an allocator is picking a new fund manager and going to allocate to them. And so it seems to me that this, this idea that there are few to begin with perpetuates this cycle that there will continue to be few of them for a variety of these reasons. I'm wondering if that, if right. you think that resonates with you and, and if there are other kind of aspects of the very fact that there are few to begin with will mean that there will be few going forward. If you think about it again, more broadly, and this is a, an exercise in just logic around how did a fund four get to be a fund four? They were first a fund one. And how did any of these managers or any of these firms get built? They got built with someone believing in their strategy, in their ability, and investing in them a little at first, seeing if they, what they could do, saying, I have a strong conviction, right, in their thesis, in their strategy, in their ability to invest in that particular area of expertise or area of focus. And they built it from there. There are hundreds of white guys with very little, I've talked to them. They're like, look, if I, my partner was at SoftBank or was at an asset or in a financial institution. I had no experience and we got together. We're now at a $700 million fund for fund world, actually later than that, but we're in a later stage vintage. So there's, that's part of the unconscious bias of 
the track record conversation and the track record kind of reason for underrepresented. So there's too many new managers. So you have a manager that's been at an asset management firm or that has been at a financial institution in the asset management department. They've been doing deals. They've been honing their craft. They get to a certain point, five, seven years down the line of doing that. Hey, I have expertise in this. I want to build, I want to create generational wealth. I want to just focus on this particular thing. Maybe I'm doing other things in the firm that are not really my, it's not really, it doesn't get me up in the morning one and two. It's just not what I do best. Like I figured it out. This is what I want to do. This is my life's plan. I want to make myself and my LPs a crap ton of money. I don't know if this is a PG conversation, but. That's no, fine. No, it's, you're good. <laughs> um, and why not me? I got it. I got the Harvard. I got the Yale. I mean, our, so I'll back up a bit and, and give you some, the track record piece is, I think is an important part of this from a unconscious bias perspective and from a digging in a little bit perspective. So we have. As part of our nonprofit training and education arm, we just launched a first-time fund manager fellowship for Black, Latinx, Indigenous kind of focus women fund managers and venture capital and impact alignment with our, our larger thesis. And you know, we really wanted to build an emerging manager program that serves the needs of those managers in a very holistic way. So from back office and infrastructure to training and workshops to ESG benchmark kind of consulting uh, firms that come in and help with that tax and compliance and all the things, again, to build an institutional grade asset management firm for 15 funds, first time funds. Every one, we just did a showcase, right? We had 15 funds. We had 65 plus LPs this week. And Every single one of those funds were, people were like, wow, 50, the presentations, the, the pitches, the, the backgrounds of these managers, they have these different strategies. They know they have more, they have law degrees. They've been in, asset, again, asset management firms, financial institutes. They focused on building this ecosystem for deal flow. They're consulting universities. This is all real. It's all now, right? Not only that, they've got Undergrad degrees, okay, some of them, Harvey, Ivy, but all of them, pretty much, I think it's 78 to 80%. If they don't have both undergrad and grad Ivy League degrees, they definitely have graduate degrees. Morehouse undergrad, Harvard Business School, Harvard Law. One, two fund managers doing M&A in banking, Harvard Law. These are African-Americans living in New Orleans, working, building fun, building the fund practice within the law firm. So they know how to put together fun, right? And they're doubling down, this particular in case is doubling down on food, alternative plant-based, which is, of course, the big thing, Oatly, the Oatly's and the, you know, impossible, right? Market share through the roof. So they've made some bets. They've done as angels very well together. They, they went to Harvard Law together. I mean, they've got this. So is that track record, right? Is that enough? Is that enough to say $50 million for institutional investor, someone to put two or three or four million dollars? They do that for a deal, later stage deal. Put that into a, a fund that you're like, okay, there's a, what's the, what do you think the percentage is that they will fail? There's, of course, any, there's a, there's always that something happens. It could be externality. It could be something unfortunately happens internally. But really, what would you, you tell me, what would be the, 
if you had it today and I just, you haven't seen them, you haven't, I've told you that this is real. And I have 15 of them that, that look and sound just like the one I just told you. Would you think, well, what's their track record? Or would you like, wow, that's impressive. Yeah. For, for me personally, yeah, I would look at a lot of the factors that, that you're talking about, but I also, you know, I'm the type, I, I just, I don't, I think for me, the moral imperative of this is enough Then, like, I think it's just, we need to, so I'm coming at it with a lens, but for even from the economic side alone, I, I come from a background of evaluating long only active money managers. So it's not the private equity space. So it's a different, you know, set of an, maybe a little bit of a different analysis, but I, I think like track record analysis from my experience with active evaluating long only money managers was the least valuable part of the analytics that I did because even when you've got a long track record, you very rarely have the same set of um, variables and conditions in place over that track record. So let's take right. a, a big public mutual fund. Uh, you can think about a big fidelity fund, right? 20 years is not the same manager in place over 20 years. And the team, the underlying team is changing over the years and the leadership at fidelity is changing and the underlying fees on the fund are changing. And so you just have this track record that's made up of a lot of different, you've got to make a some sub subjective decisions of how relevant is that the, the 20 years of track record today still. And so I, I found that the investment process, the folks, the, the pedigree of the, the folks involved, their education, their experience, the process, how well they could communicate their process and how well they all were on the same sing from the same song sheet together and could can communicate that well, far more predicted their ability to perform than their track record. So I, I would personally look at that, but I don't think that happens a lot. I think there's a lot of consultants who, Hey, you never got fired for recommending fidelity. And right. there's a lot of yeah. like group think that goes on. And I just feel I don't have to do as much work. Yeah. If I go with a, a manager I've already invested in, I don't have to do all the fundamental due diligence over again. So there's right. just like this, but there's a lot of things working against going with those new managers. Anyway, I would invest in it, but I don't think that's what the vast majority of the institution, like that market will do. And that's the, and that therein lies part of the the challenge, right? Of the kind of changing, changing, yeah. the in, like changing how those investments get done and, and who and where are the intermediaries like ourselves. That's why I found the mark, this market opportunity that has plenty of pipeline. It's like you work with us to identify the source. I mean, I just got a call with the LP that happens to be there. Like we're investing in X fund, different fund than what I'm uh, was just sharing with you. That's one of the fellows, one of these first time funds. And he was very proud. He was like, and then we're investing. And I was like, they're a fellow. <laughs> so this, they're like, okay. So this market validation thing, part of it is also that it's saying, it's kind of, okay, you're it. Okay. You're it. Okay. So now that's how fidelities again, grow. It's everything starts from this impetus. And I think we're, you said it, not me. There's a kind of a laziness, these kind of big behemoths and there's a place for them for balancing portfolio. Okay, fine. There's also, again, client demand for impact and sustainability and more diversity. And there's, it's less of, it can be moral. Look, if that's, if that is the main driver, that's, I think that's fine as a first point, but there's data that shows they outperform. So it's like the moral thing feels sometimes to institutional investors when they hear that of, well, I'm going to lose out. So that's why I get, I'm yeah. careful about one hand, I'll say whatever gets you there, because I know what's on the other hand, it's that perspective still feels like philanthropic and concessionary. 
And so that's where it's not anything to beat anyone up again about, but it is a, this is a, this could be a smart, a really smart play. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. I, I'm of the same mind myself personally. I don't think there's a right answer to this necessarily, but that I think the, I, th- I think that if we assume, if we take the presumption that genius is going to distribute it equally and mm-hmm. across you know, races and genders and all that, which I think that it, it is, I don't even see any of this that it's not, uh, then the baseline, then the moral imperative, like, then they become one and the same, like, then of course there are opportunities. And, and if, even if you could source all of your opportunities from just one gender or race, like, why wouldn't you distribute it? And I think the moral imperative is clear there that like, we should be striving for equality and there's no reason to believe that you are sacrificing anything. So I don't know, I lean towards that, but I do see the pragmatic approach of that does feel patronizing and it feels it's not going to ring with, resonate with the market, like the old white institutional male who says, well, I don't want to give up anything. So yeah, I think, and that's where that we're really digging into like, where is the actual tension? And I mm-hmm. think again, where I say it's fine, it's not all placating. Oh, it's fine. The challenge. And now I'm, I had a, a point, like a direct correlation between the cha- Okay. That's what it was. The challenge with the moral imperative is that it's in direct and constant opposition to capitalism to, to investments, even they're not supposed to be moral imperative in invest in the investment industry. It's not about morals. It's about money. And so that's where this tricky piece and this kind of, when you ask, is it unconscious bias? Part of it is, but part of it's also our entrenched, we're all programmed to, again, have this like scarcity mindset and where's the opportunity but if you put a moral piece in it, that it slips, shifts into this, like you're doing good. That's do good stuff. Mm-hmm. That's not money. That's not investment opportunity. And I, I think where the, the flip side of it is you either have to say, this is where kind of impact. If we shift into this like ESG impact art, can you do well and do good? And there's, again, all of this now growing data that shows investing for social or environmental and social return also is starting to give us outsized returns in particular markets and industries where maybe some folks in the beginning did take some losses and take some hits. In basic industries, who doesn't? When you're tilling that soil for the first time, is anything going to grow there? But maybe by you start enriching it, you start your adamant about the capacity of that soil because you've done some calculations that's actually gonna you know be fertile at some point you might need to do a bunch of things but at some point it starts to yield and then it kind of overgrows and it's if there's enough of those fields being planted even though maybe a couple of them just really are duds right like it just there's a that you're still there's a net gain from that effort. And I think that's mindset shifting. I think that's about mindset shift and less about market volatility or even moral imperatives. So I think that's, again, where it gets complicated. And I think it can be easier than we think. It's like, this this is going to be really good for business. And let's be thoughtful about a strategy that creates enough buffer from a risk perspective that we can double down on a you know, sizable number and sizable quote unquote within a larger portfolio and say, this is, if this works and if there's enough, there's enough kind of 
demand, because I know that there's market demand, there's client demand, and every private wealth manager of any success, any consulting firm, every time you hear them speak, it's there's client demand, there's client demand. It's growing. It's not every single uh, institutional investor yet, but it, it's, it's this last 18 months-ish has really exponentially grown market interest in increasing allocations to women and people of color and across asset class it has. That's awesome. So I'm conscious of time because you've, I know you've got a busy schedule and I really appreciate you taking the time that you have. I want to mm-hmm. ask two quick things. One was, because I, I didn't want to forget to bring this up. I think I want your feedback on this. I, it seems to me that one of the other challenges is this requirement to oftentimes co-investment, like you're running the fund, should have some of your own money invested in the fund. And if you're an underrepresented founder and you come from these sort of structural inequities and where you just haven't had the, that intergenerational wealth and the ability to build wealth, you don't have the funds to put into your own, A, to raise the funds and B, to put it into your own. Does that, is that a factor that kind of, and is something you address with VC include? Yeah, it's definitely, there's a lot of interesting kind of solution, uh, solutions there. I mean, we're seeing an increase over the last couple years of GP stakes and having LPs taking a larger position by actually investing in the GP, which allows, of course, you know, managers to build, operate the organizational and infrastructure, build more fortitude. It takes the burden off of the GP commit. And that's happening across a number of LPs. A lot of that's being, again, to me, it's like, it's less of, that's not a, a moral thing. It's we're getting more economics by putting capital in the, into the GP. So this is not, a, again, not a moral imperative. It's more of a, hey, we actually think you can stand up the strategy and we want to double down even more by supporting, supporting the GP commit. Long story short, that's happening more. Are we helping? We're we have one program that's focused on diverse emerging managers and climate, both in the U.S. and um, in Europe. And we are providing working capital for uh, a number of diverse emerging managers in that specific space and in that specific program. The short answer is yes, but we haven't, we're not in a position to do it across the board yet, but we are, we are supporting, but also testing and validating at the same time that model. Awesome. So I could have continued this conversation for a long time because there's so much to unpack. But before we go, what if folks are interested in what you're doing, what are, do you have any calls to action in terms of how people can get involved and support? And is there anything you're like working on that you're really excited about that you wanted to share with anybody listening? Yeah, I, mean, I think our, we're excited about the building of the franchise and really creating this infrastructure for to, you know, amplify and, and accelerate investment into underrepresented, historically underrepresented fund managers. I think for us, building out our three business, the, the three business lines, the advisory and sub-advisory work with LPs, the nonprofit side, and all of this can, the nonprofit side is actually vcinclude.com. There's some information on our emerging manager programs and our climate initiative and a little bit more about our team and background and ways to get involved there. And then on the vehicle side, we're raising $250 million in a strategy to both address kind of investing in underrepresented women and diverse managers and 
uh, making sure there's a climate and clean tech kind of integration at the fund level and the portfolio level. And so that is uh, going well, and we're looking to uh, reach first close by end of summer. And that kind of rounds out our, what we believe can really start to, you know, accelerate the space and partnering with folks like UBS and Visa and um, MacArthur Foundation and other family offices and consulting firms has been, and investment firms and financial institutions has been uh, really key in both kind of amplifying our voice and my voice as a Black woman, the only one in the space with the, this type of firm to really grow it authentically and organically in a way that kind of resonates with the populations that we're investing in. I feel really honored. It's a, I'm a, I'm an entrepreneur. So that's, <laughs> it's always, there's all the things that come with that, but I'm very, you know, bullish on our strategy and our, I'm really excited about what we're going to see in the next 10 and 20 years. This is my life's work. And so I'm uh, thrilled with what we can do and accomplish certainly coming out of this kind of more difficult time. That's amazing. I love it. I love what you're working on and I love that you're tackling this problem and throwing yourself into it. It's a big problem and it solves a lot of problems when you start to get more capital into the hands of these folks because then, then not only are they benefiting from that, but all the portfolio companies and all the, exactly. you know, the benefits of diversification come in hand. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I'm going to link in the show notes to the website and to the various resources you mentioned. Folks who are listening, they can learn more about it and potentially get involved in, in the raise that you're doing. And uh, I'd love to, maybe we'll have you, if you've got time, we'll have you come back sometime and we can dive a little more deeply into some of this stuff. It's a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Bahia. Absolutely, David. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.